The critical question is from the standpoint of bioethics and psychedelics. Is it possible to do responsible human experiments on psychedelics, ethically acceptable human experiments? In the 19, late 1960s, because of people like Timothy Leary, because middle-class, upper-class white kids were showing up high on drugs like LSD in emergency rooms, because there were well-publicized incidents with these drugs, the establishment of the late 1960s decided they had to be illegal. And we're still living in that period to a very great extent. I believe, though, that it is possible and important to do ethical human experiments involving these drugs because there are so many mental illnesses for which we have very poor therapies. You know, depression is probably the most frequent mental illness in the world. So many people suffer from depression. And variations of depression, like eating disorders, from which so many people suffer. And we have very poor treatments. And we know, based on historical experience, that some of these drugs are very promising for these kinds of disorders. Versions of, of MDA or MDMA, versions of psilocybin, we call magic mushrooms, these are really promising. And also for people who are coming back from wars with post-traumatic stress disorder, hundreds of thousands of Americans have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD. And about a third of them, according to my reading, don't respond well to the standard drugs and psychotherapy. So the question is not, do we do these experiments? We should. The question is, how can we do them in the most ethically responsible way, learning from the past? This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today's show is episode three of our series on psychedelics. In this series, we look at the way revolutionary thinkers defy societal norms in order to advance medicine, redefine culture, and occasionally recalibrate our minds. So this whole movement began brewing in the 60s and has slowly been edging into the mainstream since, whether it's through Silicon Valley elites microdosing or government-approved psychedelic therapies. With this series, we're highlighting the people who have helped lead the way. And today we're talking to Jonathan Moreno, a bioethics professor and researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Jonathan has like a super weird background. He grew up on the grounds of a sanitarium, which definitely came with some cool stories, but it also exposed him to the cutting edge of psychotherapy. And the reason all of this is even there is because of his parents, two prominent Austrian-American psychiatrists. Since those early childhood days, Jonathan has forged a path for groundbreaking research in bioethics. His work involves a whole host of things, but one is using military experimentation to inform conversations regarding the therapeutic usage of psychedelics. Basically, he's trying to find out what is both ethical and effective. But before we dive into Jonathan's childhood, we have to wind things back even further to the first half of the 20th century in Vienna, Austria. My father was born in 1889. It's important to establish that. He was 63 years old when I was born. Um, he worked in refugee camps as a medic during World War I, uh, among many other things. Started a magazine, started a religion that he called the Religion of the Encounter, um, and he started a theater uh, that he called the Theater of Spontaneity, in which he discovered some of the most important actors of the European stage and, and in film. 
1921 was a terrible time in Vienna. So my father decided to rent a theater in Vienna. He put an empty chair in front of the theater and said, we need a new leader in Austria. Who can be the leader? And he auditioned a couple of dozen people and he had the audience vote. Who could sit in the empty chair and be the leader of Austria? Nobody won. So this was his idea of the empty chair, which is used by actors and by psychotherapists all over the world. Put a chair in front of a group and ask everybody in the group, who do you see in that chair? It could be your parent, it could be your friend, it could be a future partner you haven't met yet. Who would be in that chair for you? And then he would ask people to sit in the chair and become that individual. This is a key component of his psychodrama therapy. Well, you know, he tried to do the impromptu theater in Vienna, didn't go well, and he tried, he didn't get good reviews. So he came to this country, he got here in 1925, he started uh, using uh, some of his ideas with children at Mount Sinai. He, he took it to Carnegie Hall in 1931, also didn't get good reviews. Uh, then he realized, though, that with people who have emotional problems, it can work very well. And you don't necessarily need to impress the, the theater critics who are a bunch of tight asses anyway. But if you help people with their emotional problems by interacting in a safe environment with therapists who play the roles of important people that they're having conflicts with, you can do well. So he started a, an institute in, in the mid-1930s based on this idea, started training people. He had patients. And gradually, this became a global movement of psychodrama therapy. Okay, so psychodrama therapy, that is something I hadn't heard of at all before this interview. But upon doing some research, it's actually like a huge thing. Basically, it's therapeutic role play. By pretending to be someone else, a person has the opportunity to empathize with disparate perspectives and through this lens, look objectively at themselves. It was a new kind of psychological exploration, a fusion of drama and therapeutic treatment. And both Jonathan's father, Jacob Moreno, and his mother, Zerka Moreno, were at the forefront of it. We have completely subjective life experiences. So that no two people experience the same situation exactly the same. The only way we can really begin to experience each other is by role adjustment. You're trying to come close to me, I'm trying to come close to you. They bring this new therapy to America. And in terms of immigration, they weren't the only ones. During the First World War, immigration to the U.S. had slowed significantly. But by the end of 1920, New York's Ellis Island had processed 225,206 new arrivals, an enormous contribution to America's bubbling melting pot. Among them were the Morenos. And in 1925, as the Roaring Twenties rave, the Morenos introduced psychodrama to New York a perfect match for a city bathed in lights, action, and Broadway. And that's where Jonathan enters the stage. I grew up in Beacon, New York, on the Hudson Valley, very beautiful area. We had 20 acres. He had his psychodrama theater, he had his training institute, and he had a, a small mental hospital, about 30 beds. Uh, and so I grew up with people who were uh, mental patients, as we called them in the 50s and 60s and people from all over the world who came to Beacon to do psychodrama, to learn how to do psychodrama. My father had a patient named Joe, and, and Joe had, had some emotional problems as a, I guess he was in early 20s at that point. Um, and, but he'd made real progress with my dad. Then, sadly, one of his uncles decided to take him out for a weekend from the Institute. My father let him go, and he took him to a sex worker. 
because he thought Joe was still a virgin and he should have sex. Joe was unable to perform. And when he came back, he was thoroughly depressed and became psychotic. And so for the rest of the time that he was in my father's institute, which ended in 1968, when my father had to give up his hospital license because it was so expensive, Joe was delusional uh, and he would howl. There were voices coming at him and he would respond to the voices with howls. So whenever you came to my house and you would hear this howling maybe 100 yards away in the hospital building and you'd say, what's that? And I'd say, that's Joe. Okay. You know, this is the way kids are, right? Kids accept things. The next time you came over, Sam, you know, we'd play catch or something and, you know, it was, okay, that's just Joe. Um, so that was one story. Um, I, I, you have to realize that the environment which I grew up in my father's sanitarium and training institute was located in a working class town. I was a typical teenager. I very much wanted to fit in. I played sports and I was on the debate team and I was a student council officer and I was trying to make my way in the normal world uh, because already then I could sense that this was very unusual, this setting. And I think my parents totally understood that I had to figure things out for myself. And frankly, they were so occupied with their work that they were lucky in my case. I was a very independent I definitely wanted a more standard lifestyle, but I have as a professor, you know, as an historian and somebody interested in the history of science, I've, I've really taken advantage of that experience that I had in my first 20 years. It, it's kind of a, it was kind of a laboratory of ideas, you know, that, and I could try to figure out what the social forces were that I was in the middle of. Jonathan said he wanted a more standard lifestyle, but there's no doubt about it, his childhood was anything but standard. Here's a 10-year-old kid with two extremely well-regarded parents growing up on the grounds of a sanitarium. This was nothing like your normal childhood, especially considering the history of sanitariums. That history has been a dark one, with centuries of treatment riddled by abuse, neglect, and inhumane conditions. But in 1963, President JFK signed an act that provided federal support and funding for community mental health centers, allowing patients to remain in their communities and be treated nearby. I get the impression that Jonathan's parents, along with the mental hospital they ran, were ahead of their time. It seems like they were genuinely seeking to improve the lives of these patients and use psychodrama as a tool to do so. This was especially rare in a time when mental illness was rarely talked about. But although there is this dark, complicated past, how Jonathan grew up was actually kind of good. He grew up around mental illness, and he actually understood how it could be treated with compassion. He saw the wide range of forms it could take and the people it affected. That constant exposure normalized something that the rest of society turned away from. And it created the foundation for Jonathan to challenge social taboos in other ways. And that would be where Jonathan meets LSD. A lot of spiritual seekers, you know, this was the 1960s uh, we're talking about. A lot of people who became part of the encounter movement and the counterculture, but also people who are looking for a different way of living. This is also the era of psychedelics. What was your first encounter within this context um, of, of people using psychedelics and your intro to the idea of psychedelics? I guess I was probably about 10 years old, which would have been 1962. 
Unusually, the Institute was quiet. There was no psychodrama group that weekend, but a, a school bus rolled up with about 20, 25 people. And I found out years later that they were there for an LSD psychotherapy weekend in a therapy group that one of my father's colleagues was running in New York City, and he rented the place for the weekend. Uh, then a few years later, we had a visitor from Prague. His name was Stanislav Graf, Stan Graf. He became a very famous psychiatrist himself. Stan had just left Prague, and Stan became, was already, I didn't know this, working in LSD therapy in Prague with mental patients. But then, because as we know, LSD became illegal in the next few years, in the later 1960s, uh, he had to give up that practice, and he moved to breath therapy. Breath therapy, or holotropic breathwork, is a type of breathing that changes your consciousness. And it's not too different from the states achieved by LSD. This was a new idea at the time, as Stanislav Grof and his wife, Christina Grof, introduced this concept in the 1970s, which would have been a few years after Jonathan saw this bus rolling up for the LSD psychotherapy. It was a brief run-in with the drug, but he was only 10 years old. So while I don't imagine he was super aware of it at this time, Jonathan was becoming accustomed to a world of drug experimentation, normalizing a facet of society that would soon face a government clampdown. But along with this clampdown came the counterculture of the 60s, the era of sexual freedom, live music, and every drug under the sun, an era that would take shape just as Jonathan was heading into university. So in the late 60s, whether you fully experienced the counterculture was just a question of a year or two. In the summer of love in San Francisco, the height of it all was 1967. I was too young for that. I was 15. But when I entered college, when I was 17 and 69, we sort of knew that. So in college, you know, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll in 1969 to 1973. I got to be in the tail end of that uh, in a lot of ways. But I think we already knew that with the end of the draft and U.S. pulling out of the war and Watergate, it wasn't going to be the same. So how did that inform what you explored in college? You know, my first thought, I've been living sort of over the family store, so maybe I'll just do that. But I never felt completely comfortable with that. My next thought was, well, we're trying to make human rights into a big thing now, right? Civil rights, gay rights, women's rights. I'll go to law school. That nearly never worked for me either. I started taking LSAT sections and I said, I don't really want to do this. But I did really do well in my philosophy classes. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD in philosophy. What the hell? And I really liked teaching. So in 1975, you started doing your PhD. Is that correct? I actually started in 1973. My father was still alive. And I decided, you know, my mother really wanted me to stay in the New York area. Uh, he died in 74. He was on his 85th birthday. But I, I decided after two years at a really great place, the City University of New York Graduate Center, I wanted to go to Dodge. So I applied to a few places. Washington University in St. Louis gave me a fellowship to finish my PhD, and that was great. In the wake of his father's death, Jonathan stepped into his dad's shoes, not following in psychodrama, but teaching nonetheless, expanding the minds of the youth. And he found his calling at a leveraged moment. I say leverage because there are times when education and discussion can be more impactful because of fluid ideologies and changing culture. 
This was the landscape of the late 60s, marked by counterculture and the civil rights movement. Both were aimed at opening eyes to new ways of thinking. So armed with a childhood exposure to the new techniques of psychodrama, he was ready to explore this new world and expand his consciousness. He'd stumble upon LSD. I was just sitting in a car in Riverdale with a couple of friends, and a guy said to me, here, take this. We we're going to a party at Brooklyn College. And I said, okay. And I took it. And I remember sitting in a room with music and a lot of lights and colors. And the next thing I remember is waking up on the subway at three in the morning with a copy of the Sunday Times on my lap. And I didn't remember how I got there. I had totally dissociated. So I thought, well, okay, I got to be a little more careful next time. I also had mescaline once with friends on actually at my father's place. That was fine. It was lovely. I can't say that either experience changed my life. Did you have that expectation? You know, expectation is the great word in this context. Because what we know now after decades of people working with hallucinogens or entheogens or psychedelics, whatever you want to call them. What we know is that besides the dose, there are two things really important. One is your mindset, your expectation. What do you think this experience is going to be like? That really helps to shape the experience. And the other piece of it is the setting. It should be safe. There should be somebody with you who can, if necessary, guide you and comfort you and make sure you're taken care of. Set and setting are really really important. I don't advocate people doing these kinds of drugs on a recreational basis. It's a serious business. Uh, I do think that much of the harm that has been attributed to these drugs is inaccurate, but at the same time, it is serious stuff. So you had those experiences and they maybe weren't as impactful as the lore might have made them out to be for you personally. So did you kind of like write them off and say, all right, let's just continue with life in the direction that I was going? You know, I filed them away. I filed away the experiences growing up in a mental hospital and in the middle of all this, this innovative psychotherapy stuff. And I also filed away these psychedelic experiences. This is my, this is a habit that I have. I've learned in 68 years to take things out of the file box once in a while and to connect the dots. Sometimes the dots connect well and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're exaggerated. I've gotten, I've gotten better at it as I've gotten older. And so as I started getting interested in, in brain science as a professor 20, 25 years ago, I started seeing the links to psychedelic experiences as really important. For Jonathan, psychedelics didn't induce earth-shattering realizations, but the links that he saw between the drug and the brain still affected him. He could now theoretically and practically understand how outside triggers affect the brain. Particularly, this was exemplified by the triggers of the trip, set and setting. Basically, the effect of the drug is influenced by the external context of your environment. Where are you? Who are you with? How do you feel? What are you expecting to happen? Now, Jonathan isn't exactly discovering this. It was actually Al Hubbard, the father of LSD, who figured all this out. 
But regardless, Jonathan's experience with psychedelics allowed him to view his mind in a different state. He became fascinated with how to alter the mind and look for ways to change it. I mean, think about what he's been steeping his brain in. Psychodrama, philosophy, psychedelics. These are all gateways to alternative realities, alternative modes of thought. And this led to his dissertation. So I wrote a PhD dissertation in philosophy. Um, I wrote a lot about uh, my favorite thinker, uh, William James, who was a Harvard psychologist and philosopher, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. William James wrote the book, uh, quite literally, on ideas about uh, the brain like plasticity and, and the stream of consciousness. That's his stuff. He was also, James, very interested in uh, stuff that people were, were trying out in those days, like cocaine and opium. In what context? In the context of like, how are these helpful or harmful? In the context of changing your consciousness. So, uh, William James really impressed me. Um, he was interested in these alternative forms of experience. He started the, the American Society for Psychical Research, trying to talk to people who were no longer living. One of his brothers was an alcoholic. He asked a critical question in his work, William James did, why do people like alcohol? Well, James's psychology taught him that uh, we spend most of our lives, our conscious lives, saying no to what's around us. We don't, we actually do it unconsciously, you know, really unconsciously. We just say no, we focus. You and I are focused right now on this conversation. We're, we're not focused on what's going on in the rooms around us. This is the way our brains work. We have to, right? There's really no choice, and we've evolved this way. Um, but when, we, when, when, you're, when you're drinking alcohol, as William James said, that's the great yes. Right? That's the great yes. Bring it on. Now, unfortunately, you can be very vulnerable in that condition. Uh, you can be exploited. Uh, and you can hurt yourself. Right? Others can hurt and you can hurt yourself. And you can become an alcoholic. But what James was trying to understand was, why do people like this? Why don't we ask that question more? What's attractive about these alternative states of consciousness. So that idea really um, struck me when I was in grad school. And then around 20 years ago, so around 2000, early 2000s, many people in bioethics started getting interested in brain science. The technologies were allowing people to ask themselves, well, what is consciousness? You've become a really like widely renowned bioethicist. So like as you were first coming into that, what were some of the opinions that you formed that maybe some of your colleagues also adopted or that you spearheaded? As you've probably figured out by now, I'm somebody who doesn't like to take positions. I like <laughs> to keep track of things. I'd like to figure out what the various positions are that they have taken and convey them to my students, you know, perhaps in a way that the originators of those ideas haven't. What I will say I've been really good at is taking ideas into new domains. Jonathan is bringing the theories of brain science to the violent world of war. And I think, honestly, we're getting a bit off of Jonathan's personal story, but like, that's okay. This is what he loves. He loves to steep his mind in new modalities. He said it himself, he's better at bringing developed ideas to new domains. He looks for those unusual connections. 
So we're going to take a quick detour into military ethics. The Nazi concentration camp experiments, their infamous medical experiments, were done for the German military to a great extent. One of the challenges for air forces during World War II was how you could fly in very poorly pressurized cabins. At what point, if you get hit by enemy fire, could you parachute out of your aircraft? So one of the experiments that was done at the concentration camp was taking a pressure chamber and, and putting people in it and lowering the pressure until their lungs exploded. That's how we know uh, at what point you can get what's called explosive decompression. These military experiments were done for both medical as, a, as well as military purposes. Now we can get into the, into the uh, mind war stuff. Okay, so there were two major kinds of drugs that became interesting to the major powers in the 1950s that came, came out of the World War II era. One set of drugs were highly lethal drugs like sarin gas. The other kinds of drugs that came out of that period that became of interest were, well, a new drug called LSD-25, which was accidentally hit upon by a guy at the Sandoz Laboratory in Switzerland in 1938. But there were other drugs that had been around for a long time that people got more interested in, like mescaline. Mescaline was an object of study in Nazi German concentration camps because in the 1950s, people went back to them and said, well, gee, maybe we can use these as truth serums. Maybe you could capture an enemy, a spy, and give them one of these drugs and make them talk. So we got into this really interesting situation where there was kind of a mind race, a mind control race, you might say. People in the 1970s got interested in another idea for expanding consciousness, not using drugs. What about ESP? What about bending spoons at a distance? If there are actually people who could see themselves in another place where they've never been. This is called remote viewing. The CIA loved that idea. For like a pretty long time, leading scientists seem to believe in magic. And I know looking back at this research, it sounds pretty ridiculous, but think about the time period. In the years leading up to this, the military was beginning to understand the enormous potential of the brain. And there was actually progress here. In fact, before Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971, and while troops were still fighting in Vietnam, the U.S. military dispensed a number of psychotropic drugs to its soldiers. These drugs were intended to enhance soldier performance by manipulating their perception with amphetamines and neuroleptics. This probably would have led to a whole branch of super soldiers, but these drugs were carelessly administered. In fact, some resulted in intensified forms of PTSD and lingering drug abuse. After this harrowing mistake, meditative magic seemed like a much safer bet. And that magic is still working its way into the present. The military is reopening the investigation on mind control, and they're coming closer than ever before. And it would take a skilled ethicist like Jonathan to ensure this undertaking is handled with caution. So with this stuff floating around, I was at the first conference, I was on the first panel of the first conference on a small field we call neuroethics, the ethics of, of neuroscience. And a bunch of super smart people were sitting around for a day. And I realized that nobody had mentioned military applications of brain science. I didn't see that anybody was writing about the role of brain science and ethics in a military setting. I thought, oh, there may actually be another book. I didn't tell anybody I was working on it for a year because I was sure that some sharp, 
journalist who works on science would pick up on this idea. Because I started looking around on the web and I realized that if I did a search for DARPA and neuroscience, I could see a lot of stuff that was in the public domain. It wasn't secret at all. So I, I did what you only know how to do if you're a tenured professor in a university. I went to Google and I typed in DARPA and neuroscience. Now DARPA stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And I found that they, in fact, had given grants to, given contracts to many important neuroscientists to do work on brain science. So it was not hard then to, you know, speculate about how important neuroscience would be in the, in the military setting in the future. So I'll give you two examples. One is you're in special forces somewhere. You might be manning a station, an observation post in a mountain you're in a highly stressed situation. Now, what if we could give you a helmet that was able to basically read what's going on in your brain, record how you're reacting to your situation, and send that information back to somebody in a bunker somewhere? And you also have, besides the sensors in your helmet, you also have little bioelectrode stimulators that sit on the surface of your head in that helmet that can intensify or in some way manage, downregulate the stress hormones so that we can make you a better warfighter by managing your emotional reaction to your context. More recently, and this I think is something that all your listeners will appreciate because we're living in the middle of it, there's more and more what we call brain-computer interface. You and I are interfacing with machines right now, but the kinds of interfacing that people are talking about are going to be much more sophisticated. There's a lot of interest in this idea that without moving a muscle, you could control a machine. And we already know that we sort of proof of concept of this from people who have had locked-in syndrome, but through intentions alone, they are able to manage a, a cursor on a screen. The question then is, with this proof of concept, could ordinary soldiers be able to do this? Can we foresee the ethical risks of what's never been seen before? Knowing just how wrong military experiments can go, Jonathan knew we needed to try. While these scientists raced towards the breakthroughs he mentioned, Jonathan wanted to ensure human welfare didn't get left behind. His concern for ethical science in the military totally reminds me of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Just because the doctor has the technology to create life doesn't mean he should. Just because we have the technology to manipulate a soldier's brain, does that mean we should? How far do we follow our curiosity and intervene with the natural world if it has the potential to risk monstrous outcomes? Jonathan's parents seemed to know exactly where to draw the line. Their work was just as concerned by advancing cutting-edge science as it was with the well-being of their subjects. As a result, Jonathan knew better than anyone how to push the boundaries and integrate ethical practices. Soon, another scientific venture would spark Jonathan's concern. So some years ago, a group of grad students at Penn decided to start a, a psychedelic society, and they had a conference that they called Psychedemia, a real nice neologism, a right of psychedelics and academia. And the ideas about psychedelics and had, had been floating around for me, but it was pretty inchoate. And I knew about what had happened at Harvard with Timothy Leary in the early 1960s, uh, the guru of LSD. And I feel like his approach to LSD in terms of like the popularization of it socially is what led to the delegitimization of like actual scientific research being done with the molecules. Yes, uh, Tim Leary was a, a rogue. He was brilliant, but he was a rogue. 
one of the pioneers of the ethics of human research in the U.S., a Harvard anesthesiologist who died in the mid-1970s named Henry Beecher, had himself done LSD experiments using army funding in the early 1950s. But Beecher was a guy who wrote a classic and hugely influential paper objecting to unethical human experiments in the mid-1960s. And yet he himself, 15 years before that, had been doing LSD experiments. So I thought, oh, this is really interesting. First of all, this guy, Henry Beecher, has a very complicated life, but also he's the generation before Tim Leary, and he's at Harvard at the same time. So here's a generational battle. Henry Beecher thinks that these powerful drugs should only be in the hands of qualified medical scientists, and the experiments have to be done carefully and ethically. Now here's this brilliant, roguish young guy, Timothy Leary, who comes along, and he's given this stuff to graduate students. What's this about? Leary gets bounced out of Harvard along with his best friend, Richard Alpert, and Beecher is pissed because he sees people like Timothy Leary as giving Americans the idea that scientists were irresponsible. That was the one thing that Beecher, and really all of American science, especially even after the concentration camp experiments, American medical science was really worried that they would be confused with Nazi doctors. And that's why one of the reasons that the ethics of human experiments is so important. Altering consciousness is arguably the most powerful ability one can possess. It determines everything someone knows down to the grasp of their existence. Jonathan knew the profound significance of this. Growing up, consciousness could completely sever him from the people he knew. His next door neighbor was living all the way in a world where he was the second coming of Jesus. And while Jonathan was compelled to spend his time playing baseball, his friend James was compelled to howl incessantly. Jonathan knew consciousness was not to be taken lightly and would do all he could to protect it. And so with that context, how did you frame the research that you're doing or that you were doing with psychedelics? And how did you wed that to your interest in bioethics? The critical question is from the standpoint of bioethics and psychedelics. Is it possible to do responsible human experiments on psychedelics, ethically acceptable human experiments? In the 19, late 1960s, because of people like Timothy Leary, because middle-class, upper-class white kids were showing up high on drugs like LSD in emergency rooms, because there were well-publicized incidents with these drugs, the establishment of the late 1960s decided they had to be illegal. And we're still living in that period to a very great extent. I believe, though, that it is possible and important to do ethical human experiments involving these drugs because there are so many mental illnesses for which we have very poor therapies. You know, depression is probably the most frequent mental illness in the world. So many people suffer from depression. And variations of depression, like eating disorders from which so many people suffer, and we have very poor treatments. And we know, based on historical experience, that some of these drugs are very promising for these kinds of disorders. Versions of, of MDA or MDMA, versions of psilocybin, we call magic mushrooms, these are really promising. And also for people who are coming back from wars with post-traumatic stress disorder, hundreds of thousands of Americans have come back 
from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD. And about a third of them, according to my reading, don't respond well to the standard drugs and psychotherapy. So the question is not, do we do these experiments? We should. The question is, how can we do them in the most ethically responsible way, learning from the past? So what was the story behind you personally, like wanting to create this? Like what had to materialize, what events had to transpire in your own life that led to you wanting to research and really synthesize ideas on this topic? If you're teaching people from the ages of 18 to 22, you're going to run into people who have emotional problems. And I've been teaching people in that age group, you know, since 1976. Mostly I've been teaching in places where people who are undergrads are high achievers and don't show their professors what's going on with them. At Penn, we have what we call the Penn face. It's what people in business schools call impression management, right? You come in, you're smiling, no matter how stressed out you are, how shitty you feel. But nonetheless, sometimes it breaks through. So it wasn't a single experience that did this. It was just seeing how much anxiety and depression there is and knowing how poorly we manage it. Our current management practices were not cutting it. Jonathan was watching the waves of mental illness swell and sweep away younger generations. In 2019, the NIH reported that nearly half of all adolescents in the U.S. had received treatment for mental illness within the year. Jonathan knew we were going to need a bigger boat, and the use of psychedelics and psychotherapy could be the ship to save so many. Although Jonathan wouldn't be the one pioneering these treatments, he'd be the one to make already existing solutions feasible. I mean, you can see the importance if you look at FDA drug approval. All that takes ethical backing like Jonathan's. But even once that happens, there is yet another obstacle to tackle before psychedelic treatment can truly make the impact we need. So what do you think the future of psychedelics looks like with things like maps and uh, more research being done, like psilocybin maybe being decriminalized in a lot of places and maybe the next thing to be legalized? What does the landscape look like from your perspective and what are you most excited about? Well, we're in a fascinating period right now, right? Because there are jurisdictions that are decriminalizing. There are companies, for-profit and not-for-profit groups, that are establishing kind of beachheads as potential sites for systematic, uh, careful, psychedelic-assisted therapy. There's already ketamine therapy, although it's not easy to access. You really have to have, have the wherewithal to find people who can do it uh, legally. There's a lot of underground stuff going on that we don't know about. And there are, there's really interesting brain science, really interesting neuroscience that's being done in places like Imperial College in London. I think we're, yeah, I'm really excited about the period we're going into. My, my big worry in, in this period, right, as we speak, with regard to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is not so much the, the ethics of the experiments, because I think we can manage that. It's of the, of the just access to the benefits that will come out of these therapies. So, yes, I mean, I, look, I think the future is really exciting. The science has caught up to the public fascination with psychedelics, which we've talked about, right, which not only goes back to the 1950s, it goes back to the beginning of human experience. So I love the convergence of the science, of the, of the psychotherapy, of the human fascination with, you know, changing consciousness. 
but I am worried about access. Too often, particularly in this country, people who need the access the most uh, don't get it. That is not a good setting, you know, for a for a healthy society. But I am very, I'm very excited, and I would like to be optimistic. I'm hopeful that we'll really, we're now in an era when we're going to get some really great opportunities for the next generation of people who need better interventions than we have now for anxiety and, and depression and, and those kinds of disorders. Through the decades, all of Jonathan's work comes back to the concerns he shares in his closing statements. His research has fought on the front lines of creating a healthier life for all Americans. Addressing the complexity of mystifying topics like AI and psychedelics, Jonathan discovers how we can safely put to use this life-changing technology. Just like his parents, he never tossed aside an idea simply because it was overridden with taboo or uncertainty. Military technology and psychotropic drugs had the potential to improve thousands of lives. And so placing them beneath the microscope of history, Jonathan learned where mistakes could be remedied and caution should be taken. A past founder we interviewed, Julie Holland, asked herself a question that really resonates with this work. Instead of rejecting psychedelics for its power to do harm, she treated it like fire. Fire is useful. How can I use fire to work for me? Jonathan looks at the heat, the flames of far-fetched scientific experimentation, and answers the question, how can it work for us? And more importantly, how can it work for all of us? His story reminds us to go below the surface and put in the work it takes to push the boundaries and progress the well-being of our world. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars. If you liked the episode or had a question or just wanted to chat, DM me on Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is created, produced, and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing team lead is Adrian Tapia with support from Sophia Donner, Matt Fernandez, and Maura Lynch. Our script writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Elise Caldwell, Kylie McCreary, and Beatrice Phillips. Our outreach team leads are Jessica Lynn and Ankita Nambiar with support from Lisa Lay, Marie Vaughn, Melody Sabani, and Sarah Hobson. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanan with support from Eli Lawrence, Melanie Mock, and Tiff Dang. See you next week.